DC Cyber Week is the largest gathering of the cyber community for a week of learning, collaborating, and networking. Register now for DC Cyber Week, running from October 21st to the 25th, to gain access to interactive sessions hosted by the most prominent players in the cyber community. The cyber landscape is constantly evolving, so this is a critical time to come together and be a part of the conversation, sharpen your skills, expand your professional network, and get ahead of the game. To register, visit dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for September 13th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. Microsoft wants to get into the attribution game, Cyber Command is trolling North Korea, and the courts come down on a guy that tried to hack into President Trump's tax returns. In our interview, we talk with Mike Kirshner from Vigilante Systems. If you haven't heard of Vigilante before, it's because they just came out of stealth mode this week. We talked to Mike about what his company aims to achieve. And all your favorite VCs have seemingly parked their yachts, put away the white claw for the summer, and are back to handing out checks. Lots of money flying around this week. (laughs) We'll recap it all, but first, let's recap that news. Microsoft and the Hewitt Foundation are preparing to launch a nonprofit dedicated to exposing the details of cyber attacks and providing assistance to victims in an effort to highlight their costs. The so-called Cyber Peace Institute is backed in funding by Microsoft, the Hewlett Foundation, MasterCard, the Ford Foundation, and Facebook, according to multiple sources. And while the idea is similar to the Microsoft President Brad Smith's previous ideas, the Institute is keen to maintain independence from any one company involving in funding their venture. Per a source familiar with Smith's thinking, The Institute is still hammering out details about operations, such as where it will obtain the data it will use for analysis, how it will assist victims, how many people it can actually help, and whether to actually attribute cyber attacks to named groups. So, Greg, what else do you know about this institute? So, this has been in the works for uh, a couple months. Uh, There was a lot of conversation around the world. Um, At RightsCon in Tunisia, there was some planning for this. At RSA... There was some planning for this, and I think that there was even some planning going on at B-Sides Las Vegas. I know there was a panel that was held by the Hewlett Foundation at B-Sides where they talked about this. So I believe that this is a, a very interesting venture only because it sits in this quasi space. Like, look, we have all of these private companies that are – you know, the Kaspersky's, the CrowdStrikes, the FireEyes, the semantics of the world that do all of this attribution and call, uh, you know, people out and call out attacks when they see it. And then we have governments that also do it as well. So this is going to sit in a place that it looks more like, I, I believe the metaphor that was used was the International Atomic and Energy Agency, the IAEA, IAEA which oversees, you know, the way people behave with regard to uh, nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, where it's really going to be more of like an international consortium, I guess that you could say, but yeah, hammering out the details and exactly if they're figuring out if they're going to be producing their own research or they're going to be just an information sharing organization is kind of still being hammered out, but it's clear that this is another step that Microsoft wants to take. And they want to take this step because their their president, Brad Smith, has talked about this for a while. I mean, Brad Smith has been known that he, one of his grand ideas is a, 
digital Geneva Convention, where governments would form an independent organization that would you know, investigate and publicly share evidence that attributes nation state attacks to specific countries. But there's a lot of that already going on. So it's really, really interesting to see how this is going to fit into the greater ecosystem. I mean, do you see a need for this in the ecosystem at this point? Yes and no. Um, I think personally, I, th- I I don't understand why this just isn't created and given to the United Nations. Like the United Nations does uh, uh, a lot of this with regards to warfare and healthcare and climate change and cybersecurity is fitting in with those in terms of, you know, threats facing the international community. So uh, I don't understand why, uh, not that I don't understand, I think the best course of action would be to set up this group and then turn to the UN and say, okay, this is now your thing to worry about. I mean, we've seen similar efforts in terms of just like accords too. There was that Paris call for trust and security in cyberspace a couple of years ago. There was the cybersecurity tech accord where tech companies have signed on in order to protect citizens online. So there's just a lot of mess out there when it comes to these international efforts that I think all of them should be you know, kind of bundled together in a nice package and given to the UN to figure out how to use correctly on the international scale. At the very least, I guess it's good marketing for Microsoft and Hewlett Packard and MasterCard and Ford. I think the the marketing part has to do a lot with Brad Smith released a book this week too. So I think that this idea uh, has its roots in that book because the the book is called Tools and Weapons. So it's obviously a good portion of it is dedicated to cybersecurity. I have yet to read it. Um, but obviously the, the book aligns with uh, this foundation and what Microsoft wants to achieve. Got I it. just, you know, Microsoft is another one of those companies that also calls out cyber attacks too. So I'm interested to see how this runs in concert with what the company itself is doing. Um, TBD, but it, it they've been working on this for uh, a while and are clearly hammering out the details and we should see more of it soon. So an update to a story that we talked about last week, Apple released a surprise statement on Friday after we were done taping that refuted assertions from Google's Project Zero, which revealed how hackers had exploited five chains in iOS vulnerabilities to spy on thousands of users. The high-profile report by Google claimed those targeted were vulnerable for years if they simply visited an infected website. In its response, Apple described the attack as narrowly focused rather than the kind of en masse targeting described by the Project Zero researchers. Apple confirmed that the hacking activity was aimed at the Uyghur community, a Muslim population under mass surveillance by the Chinese government, and said the campaign involved fewer than a dozen websites. And they also said that they take security and privacy very seriously. Jen, can you find a weaker statement when it comes to a security incident? I don't know. They said they took it really seriously. <laughs> it doesn't everybody? I mean, it just seems, I don't know. They, they certainly downplayed it. Um, no matter what it was, they downplayed it. And I guess you have to. Yeah, well, you have to. Uh, well, I, I don't necessarily think that you have to. It, it does not help if you are Apple and you have spent the past twelve to eighteen months going. We take privacy and security. I mean, it was basically marketing. Remember when they went out to CES last year? They had this big billboard that says, "What happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone," and 
They've been, you know, really conscious about how this works into, you know, the the greater, you know, market perception of their devices. And then something like this happens and they go, eh, it was just Uyghurs. You don't have to worry about it, which just, I, 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 that's a, it's poor. It's a really, really poor way to grasp what has happened here. I mean, it's definitely a poor response. Um, but I think they needed to do that ahead of the, the next iPhone release so that everybody else um, felt comfortable that didn't fall into that group. Yeah, you know what? I, I think that you're right. I think that a lot of the reasons that this was downplayed is because they had their big rollout of their new phones this week, which, you know, they, they didn't address this incident at all. So I, I, I guess that, that that this weak statement is is what we got. So it, it's clear that the, the, the marketing and the PR folks were like, everybody on the security side just needs to roll with the punches here because we have our grand launch. So everybody just, we're going to give three sentences and move on. I'm actually surprised they made a statement at all, to be honest. Well, I think internally as well, there's a lot of anger at what Google has done because they look at it as Google attacking a rival which I, I think is a little bit short-sighted because Project Zero has reported on every platform, including their own. So be that as it may, there's still some anger at Google there, and it's just you know typical business rivalry stuff. So I think that that had a lot to play into it too. Well, I think that you know that to, to your prior story about the institute, I think that's interesting um, because the first thought I had when when I was listening out the companies that were supporting it was okay, is this going to be really talking about like visa breaches and American Express and, um, you know, the competitors of the companies that have ponied up money? Are they going to focus more on that um, and then less on on their breaches? Because they're all breached. Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's it's uh, corporate interests are just going to weigh out more than security interests. That's just sort of the way that things work, unfortunately. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So a Chinese cyber espionage group that Semantic first exposed last June may actually be part of another collective that they've already been around for roughly a decade. Symantec figured out that much of the code and the trip backdoor overlapped with another tool used by a group known as Lotus Blossom. Trip keys in on military organizations, satellite communication operators, maritime communication organizations, media, in parts of the education sectors in Southeast Asia. But so far in 2019, it has expanded its reach in military and maritime targets, according to semantic researchers. Craig, how often do you think there is an overlap between groups? You know, I, I this story, this story pushed me down a rabbit hole a little bit this week because of the question that you asked. I, you know, started asking around because, you know, how many of these APT groups that we cover are really just one in the same, or it might be, you know, just instead of five people or five teams that are coming together to do all of this, it might be, you know, five teams plus uh, another mercenary or another freelance hacker that's brought in. And I talked to some people at an event that we had this week and they were like, yeah, you're right. This, this happens. This happens all the time. Like there's nothing like definitive in terms of personnel that they could say, but they said a lot of these groups, you know, as the research comes online and they continue to launch these sort of attacks, 
you're going to see this more and more where there's going to be more and more overlap because there's only so many people that know how to do this on an elite level. So if, and this is all hypothetical, let's just pull a number. I'll pull a number that doesn't exist. There's APT 80 out there and APT 80 is linked to China. If then two years later, we find APT 88 and APT 88 is also linked to China and they're doing the same sort of stuff. Well, it, 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 there's a good chance that 85% of that group, it's the same people and it might just be criminals that are also brought into the fray because of the way you know the Chinese value system and the Russian value system works. They, they don't care that these criminals are out there doing it. They'll give them impunity as long as you know they can come in and do what they need to do for the state, sake of the state. Um, you know, by day, do your stuff for the the PLA or the MSS or what have you. And by night, you know, go hack credit cards or go steal data because the, the techniques and the, the, the TTPs that, you know, go into the crimes are the same stuff that gets used on the day-to-day basis as well. So with that talent, you're going to see those groups just prey on the same talent. So that talent is going to be used across groups. And all of these groups that are out there, they are a mix of the same people, basically a long-winded way of what I'm saying. Like You're going to start to see this a lot more where, oh, APT 15 and 30 and 45 might actually be you know 80% of the same people. Well, I mean, we switch jobs um, and it is a job, even though it's a crime. And then sometimes we have two or three jobs, so it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, think about it from you know an an NSA perspective. You have um, offensive guys, the the NSA that do a whole bunch of stuff and do yeah. a whole bunch of missions. I would not be surprised if a lot of the operators over the past uh, you know ten to twelve years are you know linked together with groups that are tied back to the West. That, you know, it's three or four different groups that have been written about. It's, oh, yeah, I was on that project and that project and that project. Like, hypothetically, I am, you know, Stuxnet and Eternal Blue and Eternal Romance. Like, that's all us. So, yeah, I mean, that that's just the nature of the beast. There's only so many people that have these skills. So they're going to be looped into two or three threat groups across the world. So U.S. Cyber Command's largest ever upload to virus total exposes malware linked to North Korean government hackers, specifically Lazarus Group. The 11 samples look to be what's known as Hoplite, a Trojan that has been used to gather information on Target's operating system. U.S. officials posted the update on a national holiday in North Korea last weekend. While some see the upload as a possible signal to Yongyang that it can't remain anonymous in cyberspace, some cybersecurity researchers are taking issue with the upload's timing. They say that they're concerned that the Sunday publication could affect Cyber Command's fragile relationship with the private sector. So, Jen, did did Cyber Command really troll North Korea here? Is that what happened last weekend? I think they did. So why the concern on the Sunday publication? Well, I, I, to tell you the truth, I think it was just people upset that they had their Sundays ruined in, you know, the, the timing oh. that we heard was that, okay... U.S. Cyber Command didn't drop this on Sunday just because. Uh, because of the time difference, this was 
hitting North Korea in the morning on their Monday. And that was September 9th, and they have a national holiday on September 9th. So it was just a way to uh, for Cyber Command to you know poke North Korea in the eye and say, hey, we see you guys using this. We see you guys have kept using this. Uh, enjoy your holiday. Um, but you're probably going to have to, you know, come into the office, which I, I don't know how North Korea workforce holidays work, but I would imagine that it really didn't matter that much anyway. They were probably working through the day anyway, but it, it's definitely, you know, ruining some people's holiday that this was dropped when it was dropped. That's the best way to do it. Yeah, um, I would not be surprised if North Korea returns the the favor at some point. Like, <laughs> I would say Thanksgiving. Like, I would not be surprised if we're going to see a lot of holidays ruined in the near future. Something to look forward to. So, scraping public data from a website without the website's authorization is not a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The U.S. federal court ruled on Monday limiting a U.S. anti-hacking law that academics have criticized for allowing broad legal action against innocuous activity. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit refused to overturn a preliminary injunction that required professional networking site LinkedIn to allow talent management startup HiQ Labs to gather data from users' public profiles. Microsoft-owned LinkedIn had installed technical safeguards to stop HiQ from sweeping up data on members until a court in 2017 ordered LinkedIn to stop blocking that automated collection. LinkedIn appealed, alleging HiQ had broken CFAA, among other things, by using LinkedIn data in a way LinkedIn did not intend. Greg, what do you feel about this ruling? I'm happy about it because I also scrape public data and is part of, you know, news gathering and uh, reporting. Uh, You know, there are various bots that, you know, I have set up to scrape data, and I never thought of it as a, a violation of the CFAA. I don't think I, I'm I'm not a hacker by doing that. <laughs> like it's it's all just what's up on the open web. Like I'm not taking it from private websites or anything like that. If it's out there on the public internet, there's a way to publicly scrape it. That's that's just that's the internet. That doesn't strike me as a crime. So I'm glad that the courts uh, figured out that. You know, that's the same thing. It, it, it's it's not a crime. Go ahead and do it if, if you want. And But also be careful about what you put there on the public internet because if it's out there on an open website, it's out there and open to be scraped. So th- those are the rules of the road. Why was there even a problem here? I guess I, in my mind, if I put something out on the internet, if I put something on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter, um, name your thing, I... I assume somebody is scraping it using for something else. Right. And I think a lot of this case just had to do with, you know, intellectual property and, you know, this company, HiQ Labs, standing on the shoulders of LinkedIn for its data. Like, I think that that's really what this, I think LinkedIn was just grasping at straws because- Yeah, LinkedIn wanted to get paid. Yeah, LinkedIn- I mean, you look at this company, talent management startup. That sounds like something that LinkedIn would like to be um, considered, you know, part of their business. That's their business. They they want to help startups find good talent. 
So why, why would they allow a company to stand on their shoulders in order to figure that out? I mean, I, I get it from a business perspective, but the categorization that they are somehow hacking into their systems, like that's a bit ridiculous. So again, I'm, I'm glad the courts uh, felt this way. Um, and yeah, I, I'm going to keep scraping data off of websites because it's very, very helpful. So Andrew Harris, a student who attended Haverford College outside Philadelphia, admitted in court last week that he used a school computer and the free application for student aid website to try to access Donald Trump's financial records. By opening a FAFSA account in the name of a Trump family member and using Trump's social security number, Harris and other students apparently thought the FAFSA page would populate with Trump's tax data. The attempt failed when the pair found a username and password for Trump already existed. Harris, 24, faces two years in federal prison and a $200,000 fine. Jen, is this a genius idea or a dumb idea? Well, a dumb idea, right? You should never try to impersonate somebody. Um, I imagine he was trying to just make a name for himself, which he has. <laughs> yeah, for all the wrong reasons. It's a, you, you're right, I agree with you. It's a dumb idea wrapped in, like, uh, he's 24 years old and apparently did this when he was 22, so he was in college. I can see how a college kid would be like, oh, this is this is actually a genius idea. And it's like, no, uh, no, you know, no, son. Like, no, this is actually a dumb idea. You think it's a genius idea, but it's a genius idea in your eyes wrapped in a dumb idea. You're You're going to end up pissing the wrong people off. Like I, there is a hint of ingenuity there in that, you know, you could try to get that data from the FAFSA page and understanding how the FAFSA page worked. So good on you for thinking, you know, uh, through a life hack when it comes to the FAFSA page, but it's clear that there are, you know, the, the president has a wide security apparatus that thinks of these things way ahead of time. So you were just asking to be arrested. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately, um, 22, you might still be dumb, but you are an adult. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. No, this is this wasn't the teenager um, hacking into like the PA system to ch- or the, the grading system to, to change the grades where there's actually a little bit more ingenuity and that's not necessarily a crime so much as it is you're probably going to end up getting suspended. No, this is like you, you're, you're trying to use the president's social security number in in a fraudulent manner like you're 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 gonna end up seeing the inside of a courtroom for a while and so yeah and, I, and again like even if this wasn't the president's social security number he was using and it was like mine i still think you should get fined in prison yeah yeah don't don't mess with people's social security numbers whether it's your yours <laughs> mine's or the president how about that there you go So the U.S. Department of Justice has announced the arrest of 281 people and the seizure of nearly 3.7 million in connection with a four-month investigation into business email compromise scams. That's not a lot of money for 281 people. Prosecutors detailed the results of an elaborate interagency probe into BUC scams, which occur when thieves impersonate a trusted coworker, lover, or other associate in order to convince a victim to send more money or personal information. Among the accused are a group of alleged scammers who defrauded a community college of $5 million from Illinois, two men in Texas who prosecutors say used 12 fictitious identities to steal and launder more than $3 million, and a Florida crime ring that relied on 18 money mules to launder $950,000. We keep hearing about all this, and 
this seems to get more and more people, but 281 people were caught. That's a, kind of a lot. Yeah, that is uh, a ton. And it's clear that this is something that the FBI is really paying attention to this year. I mean, I think 24 hours uh, before this came out, the Department of Justice put out a report or the FBI put out a report saying that just a, a ton of money is being taken thanks to these business email compromise scams. And it's just, it's so easy to do. It's social engineering. I mean, we talk about products all the time. It's tough to develop a product that can defend against the ones that are really well done. I mean, you get commodity ones all the time. I've I've gotten them before too, where it looks like it comes from my boss and it's I, I got an email at 3.30 at night saying, oh, I need you to urgently call me when, okay, well, why would my boss email me? And Google Bam is all over the place saying, this is bogus, just delete it. Um, but you know, then you have other ones where it, it there's an email address spoofed and the directions are pretty clear cut and they've done some recon to know the org chart. So they know the names, they know how the company operates. And that's what you see with these cases. There's a lot of recon being done and it, it works. I mean, there's just not the technology to guard against social engineering. So you, you need to be careful. And the, the DOJ and the FBI have really done a lot in the past couple months to raise awareness of this. And by arresting 281 people, that's that's a good way to raise awareness because even though the money's not a big amount, that's that's a lot of people that are going away for these scams. So internet services and cybersecurity provider Cloudflare just acknowledged it might have violated U.S. sanctions by doing business with terrorist groups and international drug traffickers, an admission that comes as the San Francisco company prepares to go public on Friday. Cloudflare voluntarily disclosed the possible economic and trade sanction violations to the Department of Treasury in its latest S-1 filing, amended to stipulate that Cloudflare technology is used by or for the benefit of certain individuals or entities named on the Office of Foreign Asset Control's list of specially designated nationals. You do not want to be on that list. The filing, however, does not name these specific parties. Jen, probably a good idea to avoid this if you're filing for an IPL. I mean, that's amazing. I wonder if they didn't know um, about these terrorist groups before this process started. I think that this is like the residual effects of them booting off 8chan. Because remember, the 8chan stuff came right around the time that they announced their IPO. So I imagine that, you know, executives said, okay, if we're going to get this much noise for HN. We might as well do an audit and figure out if there's anybody else that could cause us a great amount of, of pain or bad PR or make us look really, really bad. And this is what they found. So in order to be transparent and follow SEC rules, they were like, okay, we found these. We need to put this out in the S1. But I wonder how many other publicly traded companies out there um, do business with terrorist groups, drug traffickers, and just don't know it. I would also like to figure that out and then write about it for cyberscoop.com. I mean, that that would be fantastic stories. But I think that you, you're right. I, I would I, Cloudflare is not the the only one, especially uh, in the internet, I, I, I bet. I mean, think about uh, in, in, think about all the stuff that happened with Kaspersky and then think about it in terms of what goes on with that Office of Foreign Asset Controls 
list. I would bet that Kaspersky has some of the Russian uh, companies that are on the national list. Now, I'm not. I'm not saying that for certain. That's a hypothetical guess. I'm. I'm not saying that with any sort of fact. But it. It would not surprise me at all if if that was the case. I mean, that's just happened. That's that's global business. That that is what it is. So uh, I, I give props to Cloudflare to being transparent uh, about it. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I would not be surprised if there are many more companies that have been doing the same thing. I mean, any company that's doing anything that's like really core to any sort of business, I imagine has a long list of terrorists um, using it. And it's not even just terrorists. It's this It's this list. I mean, think about it. Huawei is inching closer and closer to this list. ZTE was placed on the same list. I mean, before that list, they were just uh, another Chinese technology company. How, right. I mean, how many US technology companies do business with Chinese technology companies? Oh, wait, all of them? Like, <laughs> you know, one day you're doing business just the way that you've always done business. And the next, it's now you're, you know, in violation of yeah. uh, treasury sanctions. It's you know that that's a, a a wide wide change to the way that you do business. So I would not imagine if there are again with I'm I'm with you. I bet that there are a lot of other companies out there that are doing the same exact thing. So that piece of Cloudflare news will lead us to our business section. Uh, lots lots of money flying around this week. So let's start it off with Cyware Labs, a New York based threat intelligence sharing and cyber fusion product raised $3 million in seed funding. Emerald Development Managers led the round. Uh, Bug Bounty Platform HackerOne, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with, raised $36.4 million in a Series D funding round led by Benchmark, Dragoneer Investment Group, New Enterprise Associates, and EQT Ventures. Uh, HackerOne says they will use the cash to expand its market reach and focus on data-powered offerings, among other things. Mountain View, California-based cloud security firm Lacework closed a $42 million Series C funding round led by Sutter Hill Ventures and Liberty Ventures, bringing the total raised by that company to $74 million. Big ID, a New York-based data-centric personal data privacy and protection company, raised $50 million in Series C funding. Shape Security, makers of a platform that looks for bot and online fraud mitigation, announced a $51 million round of funding. And they are coming close to, I believe, a $1 billion valuation and might be looking to IPO soon. And back to IPOs, Cloudflare, uh, which we just talked about, is in fact uh, about to IPO. I believe their IPO will go live by the time that you all hear this. They are looking to raise $455 million in that IPO with 35 million shares priced between $13 and $14, which was uh, a a bump up from what was initially said. I think they were going to go for somewhere between $10 and $12. Uh, The firm posted revenue of $192.7 million in 2018. That's compared to losses of $87.2 million. And Fidelity, Venrock, uh, New Enterprise, and Pelion backed Cloudflare. Jen, what do you think? You know, it's interesting. So, you know, looking at the IPO and I, you know, I'm in the business and I know that these companies make a lot of money and lose even more, but it still always surprises me to look at, um, you know, something like $200 million in revenue and then see a loss of like 90 million. I'm always surprised. I know it's going to be there, but like, just still surprised. 
Um, as always, I think the most interesting company is going to be the one that, that got the seed round, right? I mean, the hope here is that it's something like new that other people aren't doing. Um, but I just looked the website didn't think it was super interesting. So <laughs> well, threat intelligence sharing. I mean, all, all if you're a cybersecurity company, you're doing threat intelligence. Like I feel like it's commodity now. So if you have threat intel feeds and you're sharing them on your own, I, I think that that's a little bit different. It's a little bit of a step forward. But um, I mean, I would not be surprised if there are other companies that are trying to do the same thing just because there's so much data out there. So um, but I, I will say the company that uh, I think is really interesting here is Shape Security. I keep hearing more and more uh, about them, especially in uh, DC. Uh, I know that uh, they've been doing work with the IRS. And hey, if you're uh, thinking about doing online fraud mitigation, and the IRS is a great customer to have. Because think about all the stories that we hear around February, March, and April about there being fraudulent tax returns being filed. If you have a, uh, a technology solution that can help the IRS stop that and save taxpayers money and a lot of headaches when it comes to fraudulent tax returns being filed, then maybe you deserve to be you know, a unicorn and have a billion dollar valuation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, obviously, C5 Capital is, is local to D.C., um, which is interesting, uh, well, and, and other countries, but, but definitely has a team here. Um, and then I guess we saw an exit in, in the bot space, right, with Distill a few weeks ago. So it's, an, it's certainly an interesting space. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Shape Security funding round was led by C5, but I mean, it's a who's who of, of VC firms, Kleiner Perkins, oh, yeah. Nor- Northwest, Focus, uh, Epic. I mean, they're all on here. So a lot of people really, really like what uh, Shape is doing. So maybe we ought to uh, try to get them on the show soon. Yeah, sounds like a good idea. So to our interview this week, we are talking with Mike Kirshner of Vigilante Security. Vigilante has been spun out of InfoArmor. InfoArmor was bought by uh, Allstate and was used to monitor the dark web for credit card numbers and financial data. And it looks like that uh, part of the business has been spun off into uh, its own business now. So Vigilante does a lot with dark web monitoring and Mike is going to tell us all about it. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Mike Kirshner, the COO of Vigilante. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Appreciate so, being here. A Vigilante, brand new company on the market. Talk to us about it. Tell us what well, you do. Well, uh, Greg, it's, it's a brand new company, but uh, the team itself really has been in place for quite some time. Uh, InfoArmor, uh, our, our parent originally uh, has been through an an acquisition phase over the last few years. We um, really starting in 2013 started to acquire different organizations that were focused on either compromised data, uh, acquiring unique data feeds, uh, and or human intelligence. And we've bundled those together into a a cyber threat intelligence practice. And we are now spinning that off into uh, a, a capitalized organization. So what exactly does it do? Well, we have, um, we're leveraging both automation from the perspective of gathering uh, data, capturing information from the dark web, and also a team of human operatives uh, that will then engage with threat actors in the underground. Uh, so what we offer today really are a combination of 
data deliverables and services to enterprise, small and mid-sized businesses. Really, uh, we, we run the gamut from uh, very automated solutions to very bespoke, uh, customized investigative services. So on the automation side, what exactly are your bots or whatever have you, your technology, yeah. um, what exactly are you coming out there? What's the automated part of it? Well, we've got uh, a variety of things that we are focused on that um, are a little bit different perhaps than, than uh, what you've seen. I think over the last few years, we've seen you know, a variety of entrants with regard to um, compromised credentials, looking for exposed email and password pairs, things like that, scraping paste bin, open source uh, availability. Um, we are aggregating uh, a, a wide variety of, of underground, more closed source forums. Uh, trying to create really a search engine of the underground economy, if you will. Okay. Variety of marketplaces. Uh, we are uh, compiling uh, content from bot logs and other content that's really capturing um, from form grabber or key logging malware actual sessions, user okay. sessions. So uh, able to link that back then to an individual machine or a, a person uh, so that they can see, hey, you know, I've, I've, been exposed. I've got something on my, you know, my computer that I need to take care of. Um, so there are lots and lots of different uh, areas that we focus on. I think more uh, recently, a lot of um, uh, really exposed data. You know, misconfigured servers, uh, open windows. Lot, lots of opportunity out there in the in the underground where there's data available. So, and then on the flip side, what are the human? Uh, yeah. Your human employees. What exactly are they doing? These these folks are um, are unique. They've spent uh, more than a decade really cultivating uh, very trusted relationships with their own cyber personas, uh, and they enable us to then access very very closed closed sourced communities uh, that they've been been able to. Um, you know, infiltrate, I suppose, okay. or engage in. And uh, what we're doing with these uh, individuals is actually gathering information, preemptive intelligence from these areas. Um, but we also use them for uh, very, very targeted uh, investigative type type work. So we have a client that uh, may want our team to engage with a particular actor, uh, you know, capture some sort of exploit kit, whatever the, the case may be, these guys are in position to be able to do that. So, um, how are terrorist groups using the dark web to recruit new members? Boy, uh, I you know we we have done a, a fair amount of research uh, around some of the communication angles that uh, terrorist organizations are leveraging. I think, for the most part, you know they tend to focus on open source social media channels, um, yeah. Facebook, you know, private. Uh, pages, um, even, but even, you know, I mean, Telegram, Signal, Snapchat, you know, there are a variety there, uh, communication channels, Discord is a, is a big one that these guys use. Um, anywhere that they can leverage encryption uh, and create an, an air that enables individuals to engage with them is, is kind of where, where they're starting and then filtering them to specific private sites. Um, so there's, you know, there, those recruiting uh, sort of techniques are uh, things that we have have done um, some research on and, and worked on over the past several years, um, largely with uh, with law enforcement just to identify, you know, some of these different areas. And then how are the government and law enforcement combating these recruitment tactics? Wow, that's and that's a loaded question uh, because I don't 
I don't know that they really are. You know, okay. it's, it's a challenge, um, and it it is challenging because the 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 sites, the tactics, the techniques, the TTPs that these guys use continually shift. So it's a very dynamic environment. Um, you know, the leveraging of burner phones, the leveraging of uh, communication channels that can't be traced um, are are uh, constantly being shifted. That having been said. Um, one of the things and one of the unique uh, opportunities that our team does afford is that personal engagement. So, you know, we've had folks that have engaged in these activities in order to try and follow that rabbit hole a okay. little bit and identify, you know, who are the individuals? Can we link them to a phone number? How do we get in touch with them? Are they part of a larger, you know, it, it really opens the nation state discussion so you, up. So you've got a team of people that may or may not... Um be pretending to be a potential new terrorist group member, correct? And just sort of going through those channels. Yeah, that was okay. the that was really the the core of uh, some of the research that we did. Yes, okay. really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I'm interested to hear how that sort of funneled back into how you see things progressing with vigilante because you, you were talking a lot about what you were doing with the small and medium business side of right. things. So you guys cast a, a really wide net when we it do. comes to what you what you guys are doing. Yeah, I think what we really are, are trying to accomplish with that team is to uh, engage in and be relevant, you know, in the community um, and capture as much information that then we can leverage at scale. Okay. So the the key is to uh, to drive as much of this as we possibly can to as many uh, pertinent in, you know users or consumers of that content as possible. Um, it doesn't do us any good to sit on you know on all of this rich data if we can't get it out there. So right. that's the, that's the key. But um, leveraging uh, these individuals for uh, for very unique research uh, is you know is a a pretty interesting opportunity for us, um, and we we try to do that in a way that would be meaningful for you know as broad an audience as possible. Do you have an example of of a project you've worked on? Um, well, let's see. Without uh, you know putting any of these guys at risk mm -hmm. or, or compromising um, anything, we've we've done you know a fair amount of work with regard you know within the retail space. I think one of the the biggest areas of fraud today really is in gift card. You know, gift card related fraud. Mm -hmm. So, um, you've got a variety of card checkers and uh, creation tools that are out there that are, are taking advantage of, you know, you name the retailer. Um, and uh, one of the things that we are trying to do really is to get to the, the core of, of how that's being done uh, within the, those those key networks. And um, we've done some research along those lines to to help you know, help a variety of retailers understand what their potential risk is and how then they can identify some of this, this fraud before they actually go through the transactional process of absorbing that, you know. You know, we've seen some reports, too, that destructive malware attacks are on the rise, particularly mm -hmm. from uh, criminal enterprises. And I'm wondering if you could shed some insight into why that seems to be, because like you just said, with credit card, obviously there's a motive there, money. What is the motive for a criminal organization to have a destructive attack? There's no real monetary benefit in doing that. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, and, and again, I think this is a, it's a very broad, uh, we, we could spend hours probably talking about this, but, you know, when you look at the spectrum of actors, you've got everything from organized crime on, on one end, uh, and, and criminal activity, nation state activity, uh, down to script kiddies and, you know, and kids who are trying to impress their buddies. Um, the, you know, at, at the criminal level, I think there are a variety of ways that this tends to manifest itself. And whether that is 
reputational uh, and or um, they are you know uh, a hired gun for a competitive organization that's trying to um, to disparage one of their their competitors okay. I mean that that certainly is is one uh, one opportunity but you know clearly um, the it, it does get back to money I mean we see you know certainly extortion issues being on the rise and uh, because I think you know individuals I mean this is sort of the the latest in terms of, of um, kidnapping or hijacking or you know blackmail whatever it may be um, you know, if, if the money is there, if, if uh, you know, we saw what happened in Atlanta, I mean, if, if a government agency is willing to pay a ransom of, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars, that's a pretty big payday for an individual organization. Um, that having been said, you know, it, it, there are a variety of, of different motivations. Um, and, you know, in some cases, it's as, as simple as, as these guys trying to develop and, and uh, facilitate their own street cred. So what does dark web intelligence, specifically with the extortion crimes, you know, the dark web intelligence that's collected by humans, how does that help the small and medium businesses? What does this offer, yeah. you know, moving forward? Well, the, I think the key, uh, the key there, and, and you've got a variety of, of really, really good organizations that are developing, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning capability that, you know, is out there kind of scouring and looking for things. Um, the challenge is that these things typically are are propagated and promulgated by individuals. You know, you, you it always goes back to a human somewhere. Somebody has developed a piece of, of malicious code or weaponized some sort of exploit. Uh, the the key for us is leveraging those human relationships to be able to engage with other other actors okay. uh, in a in a very relational way. I mean, we want to create those relationships in order to maintain and understand and then uh, be able to disseminate as much of that information as possible. And in many cases, you just can't do that with a computer. So it's, uh, it is a little bit of, a, of an interesting uh, opportunity to combine the two of those things together. And we, we have, have seen some pretty good success, success with that. How scalable does that become, having to rely on humans? Yeah. Um, and, and that's the, the core of, of our issue. Um, being able to offer uh, bespoke investigative solutions to uh, thousands and thousands of organizations is, is a challenge. Right. Um, so from our perspective, again, what we're trying to do is really take the, uh, the kernel of the information, the intelligence that's gathered, put that into a contextual story that allows uh, as many organizations as possible to take appropriate action right. uh, in that regard, and in, in that way try to scale the, the human intelligence gathering in a way that it is uh, consumable for a very, very broad audience. Right. Um, now, that said, we do offer very targeted uh, investigative services to, to the brands that we work with. So if they have a very specific need, desire, need to engage around a, a, a very particular issue, um, then we can we certainly can do that, uh, and we do do that. But in terms of scale, that is a right. It's, well, it's challenging to do. Well, that. on that example you gave of of the retail, mm -hmm. I mean that's just obviously repeatable for every single retailer out there. Correct. Right. Yeah. So you have your customers and. Hypothetically, you know, you go to your customers, you, your auto, automated bots and your human employees have scanned the dark web and have gone to company X and said, this 
group of criminals is trying to break in your system or they're trying to DDoS your site to oblivion or what have you, any type of attack. Do you think that companies should be able to take action on their own to stop that from happening? Or what do you think the company's role is once you present them with that information? Uh, this is a uh, an issue that we wrestle with um, often, and it's you know how offensive uh, should offensive be? Okay. Um, and you know our perspective is at this point is really not to try to uh, consult with an organization and tell them that they should do one thing or another. Uh, our position thus far has been really to uncover, turn over these rocks, uncover these findings, and allow companies to make those decisions. And each organization is is very, very different in terms of the way that they want to approach things. Some organizations will flatly say, we are not in the business of, uh, of, of trying to drive individuals to justice or to... Uh, you know, to prosecute, that's not something that we're going to do. Other organizations are very, very adamant in terms of the fact that they, they want to uh, pursue these individuals and take them to justice. So, you know, in, in terms of working with law enforcement, work, working with other organizations that are very active um, in these arenas, that's that's really what we want to try to uh, uh, to enable um, for, for organizations. I mean, um, you know, some of the larger uh, technology companies are very, very active in, in terms of bot takedowns and, uh, and individual prosecutions around actors. I mean, we've seen a lot of that in the last several years. Um, you know, working with Interpol, uh, working with others internationally, international law enforcement to try and, and identify individuals, um, go through that attribution process, provide prosecutorial evidence uh, that enables them then to, uh, to really, you know, identify and, and capture that individual. Uh, is, is something that we, we definitely want to continue to pursue, right. um, but we can't necessarily tell an organization that that's what they have to do. I mean, that's, that's really a decision that they'll have to make in terms of how they want to proceed given, given the information that we find, and it'll, it'll vary based on the findings. Absolutely. So, so we yeah. like to end these interviews on a random question. Um, <laughs> so, what's your favorite city? My favorite city, um, I think one of my favorite cities is uh, Prague, actually. What about Prague? Uh, I've, I have um, been fortunate to travel quite a bit, uh, but Prague in and of itself, I think from the perspective of being uh, just an, an absolutely beautiful representation of, you know, of the Czech Republic and the, um, the, the rivers that are flowing through and the, the scenery and the people, uh, it, it's, it's a, a fantastic kind of um, kind of place to go very you know romantic on one hand great food on the other hand and uh, can't go wrong terrific people yeah difficult difficult All right. to not enjoy it great Mike really appreciate you hopping on board thanks for talking with us about Vigilante Greg Jen appreciate your time thank you thank you okay thanks again to Mike for joining us and that is it for this week we will talk to you next week as always stay curious <laughs> <laughs>